Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. Every day across the country, hundreds if not thousands of people who overdose on opioids are being revived with naloxone. Hailed as a miracle drug by many, it carries no health risk, it cannot be abused, and if given mistakenly to someone who has not overdosed on opioids, it doesn't do any harm. More than likely, it saves a life. Naloxone can start to wear off in 20 to 30 minutes after it's administered and dissipate entirely after 90 minutes. The withdrawal from the opiate can be so brutal that it often drives people to use heroin again right away. A program from Yale University's Department of Emergency Medicine has shown promise to help users break that heroin use cycle. Here to talk about the program is Dr. Catherine Hawk, an emergency physician and assistant professor in Yale University's Department of Emergency Medicine with a focus on reducing opioid overdose in high-risk populations. So, doctor, I'd like to welcome you. Thank you so much for having me, Greg. Let's start off by just giving our listeners an idea of what you've witnessed with the opioid epidemic in the ER, doctor. Sure. So, I came to Yale New Haven Hospital in 2010 as an intern. Um, for my emergency medicine training, and kind of over the course of that four years, um, that was with, over the course of those four years, we saw a dramatic increase in um, opioid overdoses and specifically heroin overdoses. Um, so that kind of tracked with my training, and unfortunately, this is something that we you know saw more and more commonly over the course of my training and even even since then. Okay, so doctor, why is this issue so important to you? So for me, I think the most important thing is that. Um, these are patients that we see that are, are struggling with, with a medical disease um, and struggling with a disease that, um, you know, for which they often don't uh, necessarily get the care that they deserve. Um, as far as it being important to me, I, as my first year of medical school, I had the privilege of working with Prevention Point Philadelphia, a harm reduction organization in Philadelphia um, with their Streetside Health Program and was really allowed to see kind of the opportunities for um, engagement for people with substance use disorders, um, the opportunities to provide care, and the opportunities to really build relationships and to um, help um, improve the morbidity and mortality of populations when you approach people from a non-judgmental harm reduction perspective. So today, 
in many EDs, it's standard practice to treat them and street them. That means get them in, stabilize them, and let them loose back on the streets, regardless of whether they're, in some cases, going back into withdrawal. So your organization has decided to take a decidedly different approach to that. So let's talk about the genesis of this program and how it came about. Sure. So I, I think I would have to say that it really goes back to kind of a fundamental difference in how um, substance use disorders were approached by um, the chair of our department, um, Gail D'Onofrio. Um, we have had, um, at Yale, we've had a project called Project Assert, which is modeled after the Boston Medical Center program. Um, it's been running for 17 or 18 years. Um, and really the goal of this is to provide um, health workers in the emergency department who are able to provide brief interventions um, for patients with substance use disorders to help um, link people to treatment, to help facilitate a referral. Um, and so kind of prior to the opioid epidemic as we currently know it, we had um, kind of a mechanism in place to really help um, individuals in the emergency department be linked to treatment, um, you know, and had a really kind of a public health approach um, to patients with substance use disorders even prior to the opioid epidemic. Um, and so I think that public health approach has really shaped the way that we perceive what we are, you know, able to do for our patients. Um, you know, I don't think it's necessarily that, um, you know, and this has not necessarily been incorporated into all emergency departments, um, but I think we're starting to see more of that as people see um, the devastating impact that kind of opioid is having on their communities. So there was a pilot done initially, and what were the results of that pilot that led to the full-blown program? Sure. So this was a study that was done um, by my mentor, Gail D'Onofrio, and others, um, Dave Filene and Patrick O'Connor. And essentially, it, was, it took place between 2009 and 2013. Um, and what they did, this is a randomized control trial that was funded by NIDA. And essentially, they enrolled 329 patients who were over 18 years of age, um, who were opioid dependent, um, who had urine, uh, urine screens that showed that they had opioids. Um, and these were people that came into the emergency department after uh, 9% had, had presented with overdose, about, about 33% came in requesting treatment, and the rest were identified for, through screening. And so of these 329 people, they were randomized to one of three treatment arms um, to get a referral to treatment. Um, to get a brief intervention and a facilitated referral, um, or to get a brief intervention and buprenorphine induction in the emergency department with an outpatient referral to buprenorphine follow-up for 10 weeks. Buprenorphine, better known as Suboxone, right? Correct. Yes, Suboxone is the training. Um, and so, you know, with these three groups, um, the primary outcome from the study was treatment engagement at 30 days. Um, and they found that the group that was started on buprenorphine was actually almost twice as likely to be engaged in treatment at 30 days, um, 78% of those 329 people, or 78% of the folks in that group um, were engaged in treatment at 30 days versus um, just over 40% and just under 40% for the brief intervention and referral group. So you've doubled their odds of uh, success through this program. So after the pilot, what, what happened from there? Um, so after the pilot, um, we, um, from in our department, were, the first thing we did was um, make arrangements with um, other local community providers because it's one thing for something to work kind of in a study um, and then it's another thing to make it work in the real world. And so what we um, were very fortunate to be able to do was to, to make agreements um, with several local treatment providers, um, both through our um, federal, um, federal qualified health centers, 
through um, one of our resident clinics and through one of our local um, opiate treatment programs um, that made these standing agreements that they would take our, our patients and they would see our patients within um, two to three days if we saw them in the emergency department, evaluated them, you know, and, and started them on buprenorphine. So you lined up your community providers and you started the program then in your ED as an ongoing standard program that you utilize. So today, tell us how it works. Someone comes into the ED, take it from there. So um, if someone comes in from the emergency department, um, they can either come in, um, we see people ask for a variety of reasons, either after an overdose or come in seeking treatment or if someone's identified through screening. Um, they are, they receive the, whatever medical care they, you know, they should get standard of care in the emergency department. Um, and then, you know, are evaluated for, um, kind of a willingness to accept overdose prevention strategies, to accept treatment, um, and to set services in place. So we sort of have three different, um, um, three different, um, sort of buckets of things, um, that we do for people and they're not exclusive of each other. Um, and they often interlap. So, one is kind of a brief intervention or referral to treatment that can be done by either our ED staff um, or our project assert, which I had mentioned before. And that could either be to, um, to local um, in, uh, medication-assisted treatment, um, although if we were going to do a buprenorphine induction, that would be, have to be the pr- more involved the emergency provider um, in the ED. Um, the second thing that we do is overdose prevention, um, and we actually send... Our goal is to send everyone who we see in the ED who is at risk for kind of opioid overdose home with a naloxone kit in hand. Um, we're very fortunate to get those from our Department of Public Health, and we also have a, a local uh, a grant from our, our state hospital association to facilitate that. So, you know, even if people are not interested in seeking treatment or engaging in treatment right now, we we are able to have these conversations around risk reduction and, and to let them know that this is uh, a, a safe place for them to come. Um, and a place that they can access resources in a um, kind of compassionate and, and helpful and not antagonistic environment. And then the third thing we do is the ED initiated for buprenorphine, which is really led by the physician. And in part, um, that's due to the legal requirements around prescribing buprenorphine. Um, so in order to prescribe buprenorphine, a physician has to have a um, special certificate. It's called an X waiver. Um, it's eight hours of training. Um, in addition to kind of all of the other training, it's eight hours of training, um, and it allows you to prescribe buprenorphine. Um, and so, and you um, can do it online too, right? Sure. So it, yeah. it is. It's an on, there's online training. Um, you can also do in-person trainings, and there's a nice class, which is the one that we use a lot for our kind of have used a lot in Connecticut for our kind of local capacity building, which is a four and four. So it's kind of four hours of independent online, and then kind of four hours of in-person. Okay. So, in Ohio, we've got a shortage of people that can legally prescribe Suboxone. Did, did you do something special or, or just basically you, you just told them about the course and encouraged them to take the course and, and it took care of itself that way? So, change, change doesn't quite happen that, that easily. And I think this is um, part, part of implementing a program like this um, involves sort of a, really a shift, a shift of perspective. And so, um, we are having... Um, as you mentioned, it was you know it's not necessarily something that is in the forefront of a lot of emergency physicians physicians kind of mind um, as far as prescribing and starting treatment in the ED. Um, but we've actually had um, a, quite an outpouring of interest from local community hospitals, from um, large academic hospitals, really from kind of all across the nation for people who are interested in the logistics of setting up a program, 
because um, it'll be different for, for every, every community and every emergency department, depending on what resources you have available and what physicians you have and whether you have kind of one person who is really going to be the, you know, advocate in that community of emergency department physicians or, you know, if you have a, you know, get everyone x wavered And so we have been offering training. We offer it, you know, every couple of months and, you know, have been offering it both for emergency providers and um, to try to increase local tr- treatment capacity. Um, we're lucky in New Haven that we have a lot. There are areas of Connecticut, um, particularly areas that are very, very hard hit um, as far as kind of rates of, of, of opioid overdose fatalities um, that don't have a lot of, of buprenorphine prescribers. And so we are making a lot of effort to increase, to offer trainings and to, to help show people h- how it can be helpful and, and how um, this can be a really rewarding um, thing to participate in. So let's go back to qualifications to participate in this program. Someone comes into uh, the ED who's struggling with substance use disorder and they want help. Um, how do they qualify for this program where you prescribe them Suboxone right then and there? So there are a couple of um, kind of nuances about prescribing buprenorphine. Um, so one of the things is that um, it's hard to give somebody the medication um, you don't want to give it to someone in the emergency department if they're not at a, at a certain level of opioid withdrawal um, because it's a partial agonist, which means that it actually could potentially precipitate withdrawal, which I think is one of the things that, um, you know, physicians are, are, are concerned about. Um, how we handle that is that we have um, kind of specific protocols around when we do inductions in the emergency department and when we actually send people home with a, with a prescription um, to do a home induction. Um, So as far as the things that we would worry about, um, exclusion criteria, um, if anybody has recently taken methadone or, you know, would have a urine toxicology that that has methadone, um, because of its very long half-life, we would not start that person on on buprenorphine um, because of the risk of precipitated withdrawal. Um, You know, other um, exclusions, you know, or if they need to, you know, stay in the hospital or or kind of something like that, but pretty much anybody who... um, is going to be discharged from the emergency department, um, you know, is somebody that I would, I would consider um, starting buprenorphine with. Um, we are very lucky that we have um, our community providers um, kind of recognize the co-occurrence of um, um, alcohol and benzodiazepine use disorders with opioid use disorders. Um, in a lot of communities, there's, um, or kind of regulations or, or programs won't, people with buprenorphine um, if they um, are on prescribed benzodiazepines or um, use alcohol. The FDA actually just released a um, safety warning in the last couple of weeks um, that said, you know, we recognize that, that, you know, treating people with buprenorphine, you know, while they're taking prescribed benzodiazepines or using alcohol, you know, is, um, does carry some risk um, because of the, um, uh, CNS depression, risk of CNS depression, um, but the risk of not treating opioid use disorder or not treating opioid addiction are far, far greater. Um, and so um, that's something that was kind of all along part of our protocol, and we're really glad to see that the FDA um, kind of put that warning out. So doesn't that uh, really knock out a lot of your candidates there? I would think that alcohol is involved quite a bit, higher, a high percentage of the time, No. Um, so, so it's it certainly can be. Um, as I said, we um, that's n- not an exclusion criteria for us unless this is somebody who, um, you know, we think needs inpatient 
um, detoxification for alcohol or benzodiazepines, that, that's, a, that's kind of a whole other animal and a whole other story. Um, but for someone who is prescribed benzodiazepines or someone who uses alcohol, we um, it's a case-by-case basis, but in general, we feel like the risks of not treating um, opioid use disorder uh, far outweigh kind of the risks of using buprenorphine, which is a partial agonist and has a kind of a much better safety profile than um, even methadone as far as risk for CNS depression and overdose. Okay. Um, Gotcha. So those are cautions uh, to look deeper and qualify really tightly is, is sure. what I'm hearing. Sure. But I mean, the biggest thing is, is I think, and the message I, I want to make sure gets, is clearly uh, made is that, I mean, the biggest risk is, is not treating um, opioid use disorder with medications. Um, and I think that by um, being too cautious or too nervous or too, um, I don't want to say stingy, but like by withholding buprenorphine treatment, um, because of safety risks, I think you need to be really, really thoughtful about the risks, especially at least in our community with um, fentanyl and fentanyl analogs. Um, you know, the risks are just so, so high um, of, of overdose and death. Yeah. So that brings me to uh, a, a discussion point that um, I wanted to have with you, doctor, and, and that's about the pros and cons of abstinence. Many, many think abstinence is the only way to go versus medication-assisted treatment. So can you speak to that? Sure, I would be happy to. Um, so I think um, I'm, not, I'm not totally sure where this, where this comes from because the thing, there's been a, a, a wealth of research um, that has been done that shows you know, both I mean, significant effects and outcomes, morbidity, mortality for buprenorphine and methadone um, for the treatment of opioid use, use disorder. Um, there are studies that show kind of increased retention and treatment, increased social functioning, um, decreased drug use, decreased overdose deaths, decreased HIV and hepatitis C transmission, decreased criminal behavior. Um, and these medications are all really, they're all endorsed by the World Health Organization and the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy and the Surgeon General and the NIH and um, SAMHSA. Um, you know, these are not, um, you know, these are not controversial <laughs> organizations, I mean, you know, these, this is not really um, a medication that, it's a medication that is, is well, has a, a well-proven, a well-documented benefit for morbidity and mortality and is endorsed by, you know, many leading respected national and international organizations. Um, and so I, you know, I, I don't understand why people would think this is controversial. Um, yeah, and certainly when the Surgeon General comes out and says that it's, Medication-assisted treatment is now the, the gold standard when it comes to treatment. Uh, that's pretty compelling. Sure, sure. It's a Surgeon General and the head of the National Institute on Drug Abuse. Um, you know, this is a widely um, studied and medications that have, have really significant effects both on individuals and on um, kind of societal outcomes. So your program that you've set up uh, in your ED has the potential to make just a, a profound difference uh, in people's lives. What uh, challenges did you face in setting that up? And then how long did it take you to get this whole program off the ground? Well, I think, I mean, I think the biggest challenges are, um, so there, there's, there's a couple challenges. So, so one is around the perception and kind of professional identity of emergency physicians and emergency staff about kind of the role that we have um, and what we can and should do. Um, and it's not that people don't want to help or they don't want to do the best things for patients. It's that 
Um, many people received kind of woefully inadequate training in addiction and the management of addiction. And so I think, you know, part of it is around really kind of building that education and that training and, and showing people that um, really we can change the conversation about don't use drugs um, to, you know, I think that you have an opioid use disorder. Can we, can we, can we have a conversation about, about how we can keep you as healthy as possible? Um, so part of it is around changing kind of perceptions and attitudes um, on what we can and should do in the emergency department. Part of it is on building capacity in the community. I mentioned these programs only work um, if you actually have somewhere to send someone to for, for long-term treatment. Um, and that's what these medications are, is long-term treatment. It's not, um, you know, for the 30 days is, is just, you know, kind of our cutoff because it's an ED linkage to care study. But, but there's a lot of evidence that shows that people should be on these medications for, for a very, very long time. Yeah. So, Doctor, what were the costs to get this program off the ground? Um, so, the cost to the emergency department, um, I think it depends on, on how you look at it. So, as far as the cost for implementing an, kind of an ED-initiated buprenorphine and linkage to care program, um, the cost can actually be really quite minimal. The, the thing that you need is you need a local champion um, to do some of that work around um, kind of changing the culture and, and buy-in. Um, you need training, X-waiver training for your providers, which um, there used to be a fee associated with it, and there is for some courses. A lot of courses, that's being waived for a lot of um, courses in the, in the light of this epidemic. Um, the um, costs associated with setting up, you know, relationships with treatment providers, there, there shouldn't be any. Um, it's, really, it's really actually not so much about costs but it's really about having a local champion and building those relationships and, and building that, um, that culture in the emergency department. Um, you know, and then, of course, if you want to have, um, like we have our uh, Project Assert um, model, if you want to have someone who can help with kind of the brief interventions and linkage to care, um, you know, that's, uh, you know, a position um, in the hospital. So there are certainly costs associated with that, but this is something that, um, physicians can integrate into their practice without little additional cost. Okay. So um, do you have any success stories you can share with us about your program? Um, sure. I mean, I, 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 have, I have a handful. Um, and I guess, uh, so one thing I will say, which we didn't discuss that I think is important is that in order to, so you need an X waiver to prescribe buprenorphine. Um, any emergency provider can give a dose of buprenorphine to someone in withdrawal in the emergency department and refer them to treatment. Um, so that's a, that's an FDA that, that's a law that you're able to do that for up to three days. And so I would say one of my um, stories actually revolved around before I had my X waiver and was able to prescribe buprenorphine. Um, this was a couple of years ago, and had a a patient who had come in and who had been using heroin for, you know, 15 years and basically just came in and said, I'm done, uh, please get me treatment. Um, and, you know, he was initially very interested in going to an in inpatient rehab treatment kind of out of state and, um, you know, met with our project assert trying to figure out how to make that happen. And he wasn't initially interested in, in buprenorphine or, or MAT specifically. He just knew that he needed help. Um, and so had met with Project Assert, and they were unable to kind of get him into an inpatient treatment. There were no beds available. There was nothing. And so I talked to him and said, look, this is, this is something I would be happy to offer you, um, you know, and I talked to him a little bit about the program. 
Um, and, you know, he initially was like, oh, I'm not really sure. I don't know that I want to take a medication. I don't, you know. Um, and eventually he, well, over the course of his time in the emergency department, he started to withdraw. Um, and his withdrawal score got high enough that we could actually give him a dose in the emergency department. And so I gave him a dose, and he felt, felt much, much better. Um, but this was a Saturday, and so he couldn't get to a treatment facility until Monday. And so I said, you know, come back tomorrow. You know, I'm working tomorrow. Come back and see me. We'll get you a second dose, and then we'll get you plugged in with your place on Monday. And when he came in the next day, I mean, it was like a whole new person. And, I mean, it's, it's not that easy. But, um, you know, he walked right up to me, and he shook my hand, and he said, Doc, I'm, you know, just so grateful. I have, no, I have not felt this, this good in, in, in years. I slept last night. I, you know, I'm really, really hopeful about, about what's in store for me, and I haven't felt that way in a long time. So that was, it was, it's a really powerful thing. To, to be able to kind of have that experience as an emergency physician um, and to um, really to help. Because, I mean, what we're doing is we're, we're trying to change the course of, um, you know, a disease trajectory. Um, and we know that, um, especially once people, you know, kind of have overdoses and have severe opioid use disorder, your, your risk of, of, um, of death is, is, is high. And so I think if we can not only, you know, reverse an, an overdose with naloxone, um, which is an amazing thing to be able to do, but the thing that it does is it gives you a chance to have a conversation um, and to get people into treatment and really change the trajectory or help them change their trajectory is, is really kind of more appropriate. What advice would you have for other healthcare providers that are interested in starting a similar program in their ED? So I would say I would start by um, talking to people in your emergency department, in your institution, and in your community who... Um, are interested, who are, you know, have been moved by this epidemic in one way or another and trying to figure out kind of what your local capacity and resources are. Um, the other thing is, you know, that, you know, there, there are lots and lots of national resources available, both um, on the NIDA website, on SAMHSA, which is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health um, Administration website, um, as far as kind of learning about, you know, setting up uh, waivers for trainings as far as trying to build capacity for um, buprenorphine treatment in communities. Um, you know, and then the other thing that I would, that I would say is, is that even if, um, you know, even if you can't get a buprenorphine program up and running, you know, there, there, there are places where that's just, you know, there's nowhere to send people or there, there are kind of fundamental roadblocks that you just can't get around. I think um, even just, just starting by, by shifting the, the culture of how we talk about and how we um, treat patients with substance use disorders and with addiction um, can have a, a pretty significant impact. And there's a lot of room for improvement. Um, you know, certainly, you know, in community, um, but also very much so in, in the healthcare um, in the healthcare field. Well, I want to thank you, Doctor, for your time today and the insights that you've provided us. What, uh, what final thoughts would you like to share with our listeners about the opioid epidemic and what you've learned? I think the biggest thing is that um, this, is, this is getting worse. It's, it's not getting better. I think the addition of these new um, illicit fentanyl and fentanyl analogs has raised, raised the stakes of kind of the risks associated with not treating opioid use disorder to the degree, you know, that, that we're just we're having an unprecedented death. And I think that that in and of itself should help us adopt a more public health approach and really kind of change the way that we think about um, treating people with addiction. Okay. Well, thank you, doctor.
Thank you so much for having me. It's really, it's really been an honor to be here. Okay. We've been visiting today with Dr. Catherine Hawk, an emergency physician and assistant professor in Yale University's Department of Emergency Medicine. And her focus has been on reducing opioid overdose in high-risk populations. Dr. Hawk and her team are making a difference with a very unique program to provide Suboxone for patients that come in and have either overdosed or just want help in their ED. My name is Greg McNeil. Thank you for listening to this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.